Hey, good morning. It's great to see everybody. It's great to be back. Um, absence for me makes the heart grow fonder. I am just eager, eager to preach this morning and uh, spend time with you. Um, back on December 22nd, I got up here and I said, hey, listen, we need like more than $200,000 in the next 10 days to meet our budget. I felt kind of sheepish doing that, but just wanted to let you know. So I wanted to double back on that conversation because in that span of 10 days, you ended up giving $223,000. And we were able to exceed uh, our, our 2019 budget because of your phenomenal generosity. Uh, this Chilliwack campus alone gave $198,000 in the last 10 days of the year. Here's why I, I, I wanna tell you that I'm blown away because I'm blown away by, by you, your generosity, uh, your clear, fervent faith. More than that, I want, I'm blown away by Jesus. I'm blown away that he's, he's called us to something as a church that at many times, like for me on December 22nd, feels too big, too great. What are we doing? How will the Lord work? And he does. So I'm so blown away by your generosity, and I think we should all just be blown away by Jesus for what he calls us to as a church, he makes a way. And so uh, we give Jesus praise. Um, Also, just want to mention to you, today is the first day of, of elder nominations. We have a a group of godly elders in our church, um, but from now until February 16th, we want to open up our nomination process for elders. And so here's what we're asking of you. We want you to look around. We want you to pray. We want you to discern who is a godly man among us here at Central who's a ministry partner that you look over and they're serving. They're serving their families. They're serving their church. And you think, man, that is a man of God who should be leading in this place. We are governed by elders whose servant lead. And we are looking to build on the elders that we already have. And so the process starts and ends with you. If you uh, think of somebody that you think should be nominated as an elder, please pick up an elder nomination form at the Welcome Center. You can also download it from our website and uh, submit it uh, by February 16th. Just so you're aware of the process, from there, an elder discernment team, which is made up of the lead pastor, uh, one of our elders, Alf Weeb, and uh, a ministry partner this year, like last year, it's Daphne McRae. Uh, she's a part of our Lake Iraq base team. Um, she is godly and discerning. And so the three of us will look at those nominations together. Um, We will reach out to those that we feel should proceed in the process. They will have a time to discern. They will have an interview with our discernment team. From there, we will bring the names of those that we think should proceed to the elders for their affirmation. And the names that they affirm finally come back to you probably in April of 2024, once all that process is done. No, this April. And, um, and put before you again for you to, to, to see the names and to get back to us if you see a reason why they should not be an elder in this place. So again, the process begins and ends with our ministry partners here at the church. And, and of course, um, our elders are ministry partners from among us who represent us as they lead wisely. So just, I really do invite you, engage the process. We'd be, be really grateful. I heard someone say, we name our sons David and Paul, our daughters Mary and Rachel, but we name our dogs Goliath and Nero, and we name our cats Jezebel. 
I use this sort of as a platform to talk against cats. And I, if you know me, you know that. Every once in a while that comes out. But um, just, just to, to um, joggle your memory a little bit, or maybe you've never heard this story, back in the Old Testament in 1 Kings 16, we read about King Ahab who married a foreign wife named Jezebel, which was something he was not supposed to do, and he made her his queen. I'm not sure if you've ever observed a marriage where the husband is a total dud and the wife is running the show, but that's this couple. And the problem is, though, that her influence is so great that she gets her husband and really the whole nation of Israel to worship her God, Baal. Now, she, she does this in a very sly way, not by rejecting Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God. That would be too obvious. But by adding idolatry. Yeah, let's keep worshiping God, but let's add idolatry. And, and, and so what she did was she, she eventually had Israel's prophets persecuted, killed. She even persuaded King Ahab to build an altar to Baal in Samaria and Asherah, Asherah, which were these wooden symbols of the female deity Aphrodite. She was more than likely the most wicked queen in Israel's history. So when Jesus, in the text we're about to read, calls the church in Thyatira a Jezebel church, that's not a good thing. That is a very bad thing. So let's read the text and then work our way through it this morning. We are in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, a vision that John the Apostle sees from Jesus. And essentially Jesus gives, this is the series we're in, Revelation 2 and 3, seven letters to seven churches. This is what he says to the church. And I want to remind you um, in this apocalyptic literature, which is revelation, it's often confusing, but if we put in the work and we discern it rightly, it is powerful for us to see what God is saying to us about the present and about the future. And the fact that Jesus speaks to seven churches when there were many others he could have, the number seven in the Bible and specifically in revelation is the number for perfection, meaning when Jesus speaks to the seven churches in Revelation. He's really speaking to all churches for all time. So we need to have ears to hear what he says to all of the churches. So let's look at Revelation 2, starting in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, this is Jesus speaking, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Man, what a commendation. That's amazing to hear from Jesus. Unfortunately, that's not the end of the letter. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers 
who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm going to give you my outline, the four points for this morning. And the difference between Pastor Eldon and I is that he's really proud when he does alliteration. I'm embarrassed by it. <laughs> That's the difference between us. We, we joke about it on Tuesdays when we talk about our sermons. But once you get going with a couple, you have to go all the way. So, so here we go. Here are the four um, kind of markers of, of how we're going to unpack this text this morning. First, Jesus commends our growth in good works. Second, Jesus condemns our tolerance of the spirit of compromise. Third, Jesus compels us to repent. And fourth, Jesus' character and promises are enough. See what I did there? Okay. All right, here's the first. Here's the first. Jesus commends our growth in good works. This, is a, this, this starts beautifully Jesus praises this church for their good works. He says, I know your works, verse 19, your love and faith and servant, uh, service and patient endurance, and that your latter, we, your latter works exceed the first. The words, your love and faith, show their motivation for their works is love for Jesus. That's a beautiful thing. The love this church had for Jesus motivated them into action. They were servant-hearted, sacrificial, steadfast, and here's the thing. They weren't stagnant and satisfied in their service to Jesus. They were growing in it. Like, that's fantastic. These are things churches, our church, should strive for. If you went to their church, you'd think, these are lovely people. They're generous, they're servant-hearted and kind, and they're humble. Their greeters nailed it. They had no kids' ministry volunteer shortages. That's incredible, right? And if someone was sick or needed a meal, they were there. And they were growing in all of it. This is kind of a warning for us, isn't it? Because we can look around and say, man, God is doing great things. But here's, that doesn't mean that there's not a cancer growing. After spending one verse to commend them, Jesus spends the next four to point out the spiritual sickness that was ravaging the health of this church. He begins in verse 20 by unpacking it, but I have this against you. Can you imagine? Jesus is literally saying these words to this church. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So second, Jesus condemns our tolerance of the spirit of compromise. We first read about Thyatira actually in Acts 16 when the apostle Paul was in Philippi. He leads a woman named Lydia to the Lord. She was the first convert in Philippi and likely was the first Thyatiran convert as well. She sold purple cloth and was from Thyatira. She was in Philippi sending, uh, selling her goods and comes to Christ in Philippi. 
but she sold purple cloth and was from Thyatira. If you had purple cloth in that day, by the way, you were extremely wealthy. You were doing well. It was like the Louis Vuitton bag of the first century. The other day, my 10-year-old son, I'm not sure where he heard it, but he's like, Dad, what is Gucci? And I was like, son, Gucci is the stuff your mom tries to buy, but it's just, no, it's not true. Um, but gets declined because it's really expensive. No, like, uh, I'm like trying to describe what it is. I'm like, I don't know. It's a famous designer, I guess. And they're, because of the name, it costs a lot. And it's just really, really kind of popular and a big deal. If you had purple cloth in the first century, it was a big deal. You were wealthy. It was status. It meant a lot. And this is the thing about Thyatira. This is their city. They were a manufacturing hub in the Roman province of Asia, and their commerce was in fabrics. There was bronze work there as well, but really fabrics, especially purple dye. They were known for their inordinate amount of trade guilds having to do with the the fabric manufacturing. And so when I say trade guilds, think labor unions. They had guilds for wool workers, linen workers, garment makers, dyers, leather workers, tanners. Turns out, I studied this, it has nothing to do with spray tanning, it has something to do with leather. Tanners, potters, bakers, bronze smiths, and shoemakers. And and, and so here's the reality in Thyatira, not to join a trade guild would, would pretty much certainly mean financial loss. But membership in a trade guild meant participation in activities of the guild. Think of unions today. If the union says you're picketing and you walk over the picket line and into work, that's not going to go well for you with the union. But in the case of these guilds in Thyatira, participation was inexplicably tied with idol worship, worship of foreign gods, meals consisting of food, sacrifice to idols, drunkenness and sexual immorality. So here's the situation. Joining these unions and in their endeavors would compromise a Christian's allegiance to Christ. But not joining one could mean potential poverty. Feel the tension? So here's the worst part. There was a woman named Jezebel, that what Jesus calls Jezebel, who was teaching a theology of compromise. She stepped in and spoke in the church and said, you can have both ends. You can be a part of the guilds and participate in the guilds, and you can follow Jesus too. Jesus doesn't want you to be poor. Work is work. Religion is religion. Compartmentalize it. Jesus understands. Everybody attends these parties. You don't want to hurt business, do you? You're doing this to provide for your family. That's a good thing. But the peril of Thyatira is in that they're not dealing with Jezebel, but they're tolerating and in some cases embracing her teaching, which is contrary to God's word. I read a book over the Christmas holidays by Trevor Noah Uh, a South African uh, comedian, and he wrote a book called Born a Crime that was uh, about his story of growing up in the twilight of apartheid. And, And he noted some differences at one point in the book about Western culture and that it was really popular in South Africa, uh, especially in the black community, to have a Western name. So they might have a, a, an African name, but they might also have a, a Western name. And, and it was just to, to have that. And yet in, in, in South Africa, a lot of the students, what they would learn was their own history, not so much the Western history that we focus on. They would learn their history. And of course, many atrocities had happened in South Africa and Africa at large. And so they were more familiar with those. There's a little bit of backstory. At one point as a teenager, Trevor Noah became a DJ. 
He was always looking for gigs. And he would, he would get gigs in different neighborhoods and different clubs, and he would also go to school sometimes and perform. And, and to really make it a great show, he had a team of dancers that could really get the crowd going. And so uh, a friend of his booked a show at a school in a different community he was unfamiliar with. Well, it turned out to be a school called King David School. It was a Jewish school. And he was 10 minutes into his set, and, and, and as he writes in his book, the crowd was just going wild. The, ki- the, the, the kids were dancing. The chaperones were dancing. The, the, the teachers were dancing. They weren't Mennonite, right? And so all of those things are happening. And then at the 10-minute mark, he's like, this is the best part. I'm going to bring out my best dancer. This guy's going to come out, and he's just going to bring the house down. And so he says, are you guys ready? And all of the kids are like, yeah. And he's like, all right, give it up and make some noise for Hitler. And he's in the mic, go Hitler, go Hitler. This guy's name was Hitler and it wasn't a big deal in the communities. And he's on the mic getting the crowd going and everything stops. The teachers, the chaperones, the parents, the hundreds of Jewish kids in their Yamakas, and he does not know what's going on. So he's like, put your hands in the air for Hitler. And a teacher runs up and pulls the plug on the whole system and yells at him, how dare you? And here's this young black man and he has this white woman yelling at him and he thinks she's racist and they get in this big argument. You know, when we say, man, that person's Hitler, we don't literally mean they're Hitler. We mean they're evil in their bones. When Jesus says, you tolerate this woman, Jezebel, it doesn't mean that there's a lady named Jezebel in the church. But what I really believe it means is that there actually was a woman in the church of Thyatira who was using, and Jesus is using a description of this Old Testament woman to talk about an actual woman in the church. And so it's safe to assume that she had a powerful personality. She had a following. She would have been influential and a compelling communicator. You wanted to follow her because you liked what she said, but she was like the first Jezebel, evil deceptive, domineering, scheming, idolatrous, and sexually immoral. She promised her hearers freedom in Christ, but was actually leading them into slavery and away from the lordship of Christ. And so here are three really important things I think Thyatira and Central need need to recognize and confront. The first is this, leadership matters. Can I ask you a question from the text? Who appointed her? Verse 20, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Red flag, (laughs) red flag. Hey, my name's Dave, I'm an elder at Central. Oh, you're on the elder team? I didn't know that. No, 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 I refer to myself as an elder. Red flag, red flag. Who appointed her a prophetess in the church? God didn't. The church even didn't. She did. She's this self-proclaimed leader. She does, th- this doesn't negate the fact that there are those in the church who legitimately have the gift of prophecy, but here was an inappropriate seizing of power going on because clearly she had a following. 
And she was a self-proclaimed leader in the church. We need to remember, Central, that when someone or something takes our eyes off Jesus or adds to or minimizes the gospel or compromises on biblical truths, that's not a voice you want influencing your life. Like, leadership's a big deal in our church, and the leaders of our church are held accountable by you and by our elders as a plurality. There isn't one uber leader. There are a number of wise, godly leaders who hold one another in the church accountable for truth. See, the church should have confronted and excluded the Jezebel, but instead they tolerated her in her state of unrepentance. The second thing we really need to see is that truth matters. Truth matters. Jezebel says that this, that, or Jesus says that this Jezebel is teaching and seducing my servants. This word seducing is literally deceiving and leading astray. Her doctrine was attractive and seductive. It led to death. It seemed fresh. It seemed exciting. When they heard her teach, it sounded like prosperity and freedom. But here's the problem. Her teaching claimed to exalt Jesus, but it actually dethroned Jesus. She claimed to teach the truth, but her teaching was built on a lie. Here's a reality. It's probably one of the big things I'd want you to take away from our our text this morning, our time together this morning. In reality, almost always, new interpretations come about to excuse sin. Almost always, the new interpretation comes along to excuse sin. Well, I left my wife and I'm sleeping with this person because they didn't make me happy. Okay, you just did four things to God's word there that you could justify that biblically and before your Savior. So your motivation for a new interpretation on marriage and divorce is not that it will draw you closer to your Savior. It's that it'll free you up to your sin. The thing you actually have dethroned Jesus with already because you're chasing something other than Christ, contradictory to Christ. Do you see it? Man, we're 2,000 years into the Christian faith, the church, Man, when you find a new interpretation in the 21st century that no one in church history ever espoused, that's another red flag. See, we're tempted to base our lives on the way things are. This is the spirit of Baal worship alive and well today. We rationalize. Because I feel this way, because I have these desires, I have these drives, they must be right, and I'm only being true to myself if I'm guided by them. But Jesus teaches that something has gone deeply wrong in the universe, that it isn't functioning the way it was created to be, and therefore some of our feelings, drives, and desires have been distorted and can actually ruin our lives if we give in to them. We only know who we are created to be and how we are created to live from the word of God, from the maker of heaven and earth, and in whose image we have been created. And not only did Jezebel teach these deep things of Satan, the church of Thyatira tolerated it. 
Just to do a little bit of review, the series started with the church in Ephesus. And I loved listening to Norm Funk preach about Ephesus. That was incredible. I really look up to him and I was really thankful that he came to preach. Here's what we review about Ephesus. Ephesus was really good at doctrinal purity. They understood what they were called to be as a church, but they'd lost their first love. They were 60 years into the faith in the church in Ephesus and they're hardened. They knew what they were supposed to do, but they were hard-hearted about doing it. Thyatira's the opposite. They're very loving, but to a fault. They think it's loving to tolerate evil in their midst by not addressing it. They sacrificed doctrinal purity. What is tolerance? Literally, it's to leave alone or to permit. They thought they were loving by not addressing Jezebel, when in actuality, they were being unloving by permitting her to ravage their church from the inside out. Ephesus lacked love. Thyatira lacked truth. And a healthy church needs both. Love for Jesus had grown cold in Ephesus. Love for truth had grown cold in Thyatira. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes, leaders in the church are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, just maturity as a disciple, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, see, both. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. That's Christianity. That's the way of Jesus. And there will always be, in every society, always be pressure points where Christians are called to swim against the currents of culture that will be difficult and unpopular. Paul said in Galatians 1, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Why? Because it doesn't always go well to serve Jesus in this world. We're called to obey God rather than man. We don't adapt God's imperatives to suit our circumstances. We submit our circumstances under God's imperatives and ask him to give us the strength to remain faithful. I'll say that one more time. We don't adapt God's imperatives to suit our circumstances. We submit our circumstances under God's imperatives and ask him to give us the strength to remain faithful. I've seen this over and over again. People bend on the doctrines of the faith and before long, faith in Jesus, love for Jesus is gone. Third, morality matters. This Jezebel taught and deceived many of the followers of Jesus in Thyatira to do two things, participate in pagan idolatry and commit sexual immorality. Um, when you see this, these, these words, sexual immorality, this, this term in the New Testament, it, it's always a catch-all term to describe sex outside of the context God created it for. If you study the scriptures, you see the context that God created sex for as a beautiful thing, but in the context of a covenant marriage between a husband and a wife. 
And Jezebel was teaching that it was fine to compartmentalize your sacred and your secular worlds. That's really idealistic of God, but I live in the real world. As if Jesus isn't the one ruling and reigning over the world that is. Right? Business is business, Jesus understands. A little compromising of convictions won't hurt anything. We have so many excuses, but just think a moment about the moral character of God. Daniel Aiken wrote, when the church looks like the world, you have a sick church. When the church acts like the world, you have an impotent church. And when the church plays with the world, you have an unfaithful church. See, we need to remember, Central, that the standard for the church isn't the world. It's Jesus. Jesus is writing to his churches. Jesus walks among his churches. And he calls us to faithfulness to him, whatever the cost. Third, and this is where the text really starts to get beautiful, Jesus compels us to repent. It says in verse 21, It'll eventually get beautiful. (laughs) These are hard verses. Here we go. I gave her time to repent, verse 21, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. Well, that's a hard verse. Let me just describe that. Her children, who are they? They refer to her spiritual offspring. They're those who share her debased views and nature. They've listened to her and they've agreed with her and they follow her into sin. Jesus doesn't mince words here. To kill them means to turn them over to the destruction and death that they are pursuing. But here's the generous reality of Jesus. Jesus brings judgment on those who refuse to repent, but he gives sinful people opportunity to repent. As the text shows us, opportunity after opportunity to repent. Not only, he not only gives those seduced by Jezebel time to repent, and the spiritual children of Jezebel time to repent, he gives Jezebel time to repent. You see that, right? But when they won't repent, he says that he'll throw them into great tribulation unless they repent. See, Jesus brings judgment on those who refuse to repent, but he gives sinful people every possibility, every possible opportunity to repent. These are the words and actions of a holy, righteous, just, and merciful God. Jesus is neither a vindictive judge who shows no mercy, nor does he just sweep injustice under the rug. How do we know that? Because he went to the cross, because sin has to be dealt with. See, the sin of Thyatira was that the church tolerated sin and many of them participated in sin unrepentantly. Can I be honest with you? Good, because I'm going to be, no matter what. We tolerate sin so much and we call it love. We tolerate sin so much and we call it being gracious. We tolerate sin so much and call it freedom in Christ. We tolerate sin so much because we love it. 
We're not supposed to tolerate sin, though. We're supposed to kill it. John Owen famously wrote, do you mortify, meaning do you put sin to death? Do you make it your daily work? Always be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Truer words have not been said about the church in Thyatira. That is the issue at hand. A few months ago, I led a seminar called LGBT Plus Jesus and Church. And right at the beginning of it, I just wanted all of us, everybody there, I think there were 250 people in this very room for the seminar. I just wanted us to have the right posture. And so I just talked about sexual immorality in general and just very quickly we realized, man, that everybody in the room was sexually broken. Everybody in the room that night was a sexual sinner and it's the exact same case today. Bill Perkins said, if you think you can't fall into sexual sin, then you're godlier than David, stronger than Samson, and wiser than Solomon. The question is, are we repenting and killing sin, or are we tolerating it and compromising our very faith? Faith in God and Baal isn't faith in God. What are the sins that you're tolerating? Faith in God and rolling with the cultural norms contrary and contradictory to faith in God isn't authentic faith. It's rebellion. It's blending the faith with the idolatry surrounding us. Quick questions. What is the sexual sin that you tolerate and compromise your faith with? Premarital sex, right? That's just dating today and you compartmentalize it. That's the dating world. It's fine, it's normal, that's standard. I don't wanna be the weirdo who isn't doing that. Right? Participation in the hookup culture, it's not even dating, it's just hookup culture. It's swipe right or swipe left, I'm not sure which is the one that says yes, but it's one of those and it's just, it's normal. There's an app and you can hook up with somebody, you can meet somebody. You can swipe whichever, I don't know, direction you're supposed to go. And just thinking that that's, that's life. That's Canada. That's just being a 21st century warm-blooded human being. Man, Christianity is so prudish. Jesus doesn't really mean that. Maybe it's porn for you. Maybe it's literally the, 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 the viewing of victimized image bearers of God for your satisfaction while you're corrupting your mind and your heart. And if you're married, brutalizing that relationship. Man, I just, it's everywhere, you know, you, a couple clicks and you're there and it's, uh, what are you gonna do? And you rationalize it. I get this stuff, I get this stuff. Maybe it's being unfaithful to your spouse. Literal affair, emotional affair, driving a wedge between you and your spouse because literally there's someone else you're chasing, someone else you're fixated on, someone else you're fantasizing about. Maybe it's a little more simplistic than that. Maybe you're literally just being undiscerning with what you watch. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. But the most popular show in the last few years, I get that it's literally softcore porn, but everybody's watching it. Like, I don't want to, again, I don't want to miss out. And my word to you would be, yes, miss out, you dummy. Miss out on the show so you don't miss out on Jesus. No, it's just freedom in Christ. It's rebellion against the Savior who died for you. Let me just clarify this. I want to make this as clear as I can. God doesn't expect us to be perfect every day all the time. Though we strive to be like Jesus in all his perfection, that's the goal of the Christian, of the disciple of Jesus. Yes, but what God expects of us day to day is to be a community of repenting sinners. He expects us to call sin what he calls sin. So what in your life is contrary to the word of God? Where are you compromising? Do you have a posture of repentance around it? Or are you compartmentalizing and justifying it? Where are you compromising? And what's your heartbeat around that? Lastly, this is where it gets better. Really good. Jesus' character and promises are enough. Here's what we've learned so far. A church that tolerates false teaching and corrupt morality will be judged if they don't repent, if they literally don't address it and turn from it. But we also discover in the text that those who hold fast to the truth of the gospel will be rewarded as the astounding words of Jesus promise at the end of this text. Let's look at his promises. Verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I'll give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. When he says the one who conquers, it literally means victorious and the one who overcomes. To the one who perseveres in the gospel, in all the difficulty, to the end, who keeps their eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus says that the authority over the nations that he's received from God the Father, he will share with you. And then in verse 28, it says, I will give him the morning star. I'll give them Jesus. I'll give them me, he says. Jesus is saying, if you just keep your eyes on me, the bright morning star that appears just before the dawn, in the dark, in the hardship, if you just persevere, I will give you the bright morning star that appears just before the dawn. You will receive my rule and myself. So hang on. What promises and what a savior Every time, you've probably seen the pattern already, but Jesus gives really vivid descriptors of himself to start each passage, and those descriptors matter a lot for the church that he's describing himself that way to, and th that's exactly the same case here. So it says, he started this text by saying, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Why does he call himself the Son of God? Well, because the church itself was dabbling in idol worship. In fact, some were fully given over to it. And Apollo, the sun god, and Diana, the fertility goddess, were the more significant deities in Thyatira. And Apollo, son of Zeus, 
was referred to as the son of God. So Jesus comes along and says, I'm the true son of God. I'm the true son of God, not Apollo, the son of a lifeless idol. And as the true son of God, Jesus is given all authority. He's given all authority over Apollos and Zeus and Caesar and trade guilds and business and corporations and the nations. Jesus is the true son of God. Goes on to describe himself as having eyes like a flame of fire. You should see this as terrifying and comforting. It's terrifying because like a searchlight, he exposes with his eyes all that we try to keep hidden and secret. This speaks to Jesus' ability to see things as they are, all actions, all thoughts, all emotions. It's the omniscience of God. This scares kids sometimes, right? People are like, God sees everything you do. And it's true. It is true. But it's also a comforting word because he searches our hearts so he can cleanse and heal us. He looks right in at you and he knows everything. But he knows because he loves you, he wants to work it through with you. He wants to cleanse you. Jesus is for you. Jesus wants to heal you. He wants to bring the remedy to you in the broken areas of your lives. It's comforting because he sees all things, nothing is his, and he does so to bring transformation to you. He's saying, I see your stuff. I see your sin. So bring it to me. Come to me. Repent. What have you been living with as hidden? As if it's hidden. It's not. He sees it so that he can transform you, so that he can work in you. Lastly, he tells us, this church in Thyatira, he tells us that he has feet like burnished bronze. This is another terrifying and comforting image See, Thyatira was famous for its bronze work, but their best pales in comparison to Jesus. What's terrifying is the feet of Jesus are so strong and decisive in trampling out evil. The texts this morning are literal words of Jesus. If, if your idea of Jesus doesn't meet the text this morning, you have the wrong idea of Jesus. And so the burnished bronze terrifying part of that that his feet are like that, is it's meant to instill in you a fear of God. My life matters. My actions matter. My rebellion matters, and it's seen, and I will be judged. We're to have a healthy fear of the Lord, but listen, feet like burnished bronze on Jesus is also a comforting image because he uses those same feet to chase after us. I was watching this compilation of, of, of like epic dad footage. It was awesome. It was like a little like toddler by a swing and the kid was just about to get knocked and the dad just like just ran in and swept him up. The little toddler was going to run out on the street and the dad just appeared and got him. It was like an infant falling from the couch and he perfectly like laid out his hand and caught the baby. This is an image that we were supposed to see of Jesus. Yes, his feet are like burnished bronze. He's bigger. He's better. He's more glorious. He's stronger and he can decisively work in your life, but man, he uses that strength to chase you down and build you back up. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh, what a perfect morning to take communion, hey? Uh, this is open to everybody who follows Jesus and feels like, by and large, they're, relations, they're, they're in right relationship with other believers. Uh, the, the communion table is for 
uh, you to come and receive from the one who died for you. And if you believe that, we invite you to come and receive. I, I like to look at, at, at communion in, in, with a couple, I have a couple images in mind. One, one is one of, of repentance, which I guess the image for that would be on your knees or on your face. You're so sinful, Jesus had to die. And yet his sins pay the penalty for your sins when you respond with repentance. Your task, follower of Jesus, is to repent. That's a posture of humility on your knees, on your face. It's a spiritual posture, and, and it's an actual thing. You're, you are to repent. But the other vivid image I see when it comes to communion is praise. Hands outstretched to God. He is so good. You come in repentance, you get the free gift of grace, and you are forgiven. That should just take the burden and lift it. That, should, that, that should, should, should fix our gaze to the heavens of a Savior who loves us that much that he would do that for us. So I'm going to pray our communion servers, the rest of the band are going to come back up. And uh, we just want to respond. Look, if you're exploring faith in Jesus or someone literally dragged you here against your will, no one will think anything of it if you just observe what's going on. But if you love Jesus, you want to follow Jesus, bring your sin to him in repentance, and then stretch your hands out to him in praise. He loves you. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for a hard word. Now we need it sometimes, Lord. We need to, the truth to pierce where we're weak, where we're vulnerable, where we're tolerating, um, where we're compartmentalizing. These are, these are such helpful categories, Lord, because um, our hearts are crooked. We excuse so much, but Jesus, when we look to your word, we see you for who you are, your purity, and we are to follow after you. Lord, I, I pray for a heart of repentance in this room that we would repent of our Jezebelian ways. And thank you that the cross, that at the cross, you paid it all so we can be forgiven. You called the church in Thyatira to repent. We won't have forever to do that, Lord. Today is the day of repentance. May that be the very posture of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.